We are continuing this morning in our series on the Psalms. And so, it gives me great joy to remind you again that God has put a book of stuff to sing right in the middle of your Bible. That thesis by itself is worthy of your reflection and all of our thanksgiving today. God knows that what you sing shapes who you are and how you think. Now, there are lots of things that shape who you are and how you think. I submit to you that what you sing is one of them. And so God has given us songs to sing about Him, about us, about our world, about our enemies, about our mission, about our sins, and about our glorious rescue. These songs belong to us and to our children forever. I want to talk to you about a sort of a subsection within the Psalter, within the Psalms this morning, before we go to the text for the sermon. And so I would invite you to turn to Psalm 120, which is not the text for this morning, but it is where I want you to go in your Bible. So if you've, if you've got a Bible, you, well, you do have one right in front of you, uh, and, uh, or, or you've got one on your phone perhaps, we're going to start in Psalm 120, which is on page 611 of the Bibles in your pews, if that's what you're using, 611. Um, and actually the verse we'll be looking at is on the next page, 612. Um, but Psalm 120, you might notice uh, if, you have a, if you're reading from the ESV, it begins with this title, Deliver Me, O Lord, which is a summary title that the ESV translators have given to the psalm. And then right after that, you notice this superscription, a song of ascents, that is ascending, going up. I want to talk to you briefly about uh, songs of ascents. Okay, these are songs in the Psalter that have a specific purpose. They begin right here in Psalm 120, and they run through Psalm 134, which is our text for this morning. The purpose of these particular psalms is that you were to sing them, you and other pilgrims were to sing them while you were ascending up to Jerusalem. Okay, while you were. It, this is obviously. This is for pilgrims who don't live in Jerusalem, worshipers of Yahweh, and they are ascending up to Jerusalem for uh, usually for the high feast days, the high holy days. Now, uh, the, the the terminology there is, is very interesting. Some of you, if you if you've been to if you have been to Israel, I know your tour guide has not failed to mention that if you are going to Jerusalem, it's always going up, even if you are at a higher elevation and going to Jerusalem at a lower elevation, even if that's the case, you're still going up to Jerusalem and then going down to wherever you came from. It was common practice then for Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem to return to, to, uh, to, to Zion, to, to the city, for their high feast days. And these are the songs they would sing to encourage their own hearts and each other's hearts on the way. And as they would get closer to the city, it's likely that they would have heard these songs being sung from the walls as well. And so you have this dynamic where pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem for the high feast days, and the song in Jerusalem then is growing louder and louder and louder as they all come in. Now the song, uh, songs of ascents are so important, they probably deserve their own sermon series, and maybe in a few years I'll come back to them and do that. That would be great fun and I think highly profitable for us. But for now, I just want you to get a sense, no pun intended, of what these Psalms of Ascent are about. 
The best way to do that is we're going to kind of walk through them or rather maybe sprint through them really quick. That's why I wanted you to have your Bible open to 120 because it's not going to be on the screen. We're just going to sort of speed walk through so you can get an idea of the flow. And there is a flow happening here with these songs and what they're meant to accomplish. So there are 15 of them going from 120 to 134. Begins with Psalm 120 and you'll see verse 5, as I told you, uh, page 612 on your pew Bibles, verse 5. Uh, talks about the alien surroundings of Meshach and Kedar. All right? Woe to me that I sojourn right, in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. And so that's where I am. I'm not in Jerusalem where I want to be. And so the ascent begins, going up to Jerusalem. And again, these songs, the idea is that the, the pilgrims who are singing them are looking far off into the distance and they can see the mountains of, of Jerusalem the mountains of Zion. And so they start singing. And what's the next one? Psalm 121, I will lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come. Psalm 122, we're we're still walking, we're still going. It was good when they said to me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. So, So we're going, let's go. Psalm 123, the journey is long, but our eyes are looking to the Lord our God. Our God is merciful And we're going to hold on to Him. Psalm 124 then, last week, last Sunday's psalm. To keep us going, let's sing a song of thankfulness. Let Israel now say, had the Lord not our right maintained, and so on. Psalm 125, let's keep singing about our God. He's strong. He protects us just like those mountains that we're looking at that surround Jerusalem. So our God surrounds and protects us. 126, do you remember when the Lord brought Zion out of her captivity? We thought all was lost, but then He rescued us. That's the kind of God we have. 127, He's done all this for us, and so we know if the Lord builds the house, all is well. If He doesn't, all is lost. But He's the one building Zion. He's the one building His people. He's the one building our families, filling our quivers full of little arrows. 128, He's giving us all we need for our journey. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. They have what they need, so let's keep going. 129, we've had some hard times. Times when our enemies triumphed over us, but they won't get the last word. They won't get the last word. They've afflicted me from my youth, but I'm going to hold on to hope that God's going to do something about it. So, 130, Lord, help us from the depths we cry to you. This journey is too long for us, and we were reflecting on the hard times that we've had. Psalm 131, you are our help and you are our hope. Psalm 132 is the arrival psalm. God has been good and God has kept all His promises to David. Okay, uh, verse 11 of Psalm 132. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which you would not turn back. So because God has kept all His promises, here we are. We've we've, uh, once again joined our brothers and sisters in David's city. Psalm 133, the rejoicing keeps going. Isn't this great? How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like dew on these mountains that surround Jerusalem and so on. So you see the flow. So then we get to 134. Well, what is 134 about? 134 is we've celebrated, we've had the feast, it's time to go home. Okay? So let's read it together. Now we can go to the text, Jeremiah. Come, bless the Lord. All you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. 
May the Lord, may Yahweh, may Jehovah bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. So this psalm is meant to be the the closing psalm of this whole journey. As the, the pilgrims have celebrated together, are now returning home. It could be the final word of celebration as they're coming in. I think I think the idea is, again, calling upon the, the, the servants in the house of the Lord by night. The idea is they, they've risen up early in the morning before the sunrise, and they're packing up to go home. But I'll, more on that in a moment. So uh, one thing I want you to notice about this psalm is it's a call and response. We have those in our worship very frequently. Where do we get the idea? We got the idea from this psalm and others like it. Verse 1, they begin, Come, bless the Lord, bless Yahweh, all you servants of the Lord, you who stand by night, in the house of the Lord. What this is, is it's the people calling out to the watchmen and the Levitical priests in the temple. So there are a few references in Old Testament law and in the histories as well to, to day service in the temple and night service in the temple. One of them being, um, it was still one through three, hang on. There we go. Thank you. First Chronicles 9. Now these, the singers, the heads of fathers' houses of the Levites, were in the chambers of the temple, free from other service, for they were on duty day and night. Part of the worship of Israel was the reality that there was always someone in the temple carrying on the responsibilities of worship before God. Now, some of that was a security feature. There was, after all, valuable stuff inside the temple, and you didn't want thieves coming in and trying to help themselves to it. But there was also this sense, and it's honestly just a really cool idea, that, that the worship of God was always happening day and night in the place He had appointed and, and chosen to dwell. And this was part of the responsibility of the Levites was to keep that going. And, and it kind of makes you think, like Psalm 134, come bless the Lord, right? It's you know, 3 a.m. and you're in the house of the Lord. What else are you going to do, right? So this is the people calling on the Levites to essentially like, do your job. Carry on what the Lord has given you to do. And that first invitation, come bless the Lord. Can we go back to that? Come bless the Lord. The King James Version, uh, and I think the New King James as well, has behold bless the Lord. Behold is probably the better term. It is the same Hebrew word from Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. Same word happening there. But the way the word is functioning, <clears throat> it's almost like, um, like the, the, the softest way to put it would be, can I have your attention, please? Right? So behold is a word that means look, right? So, so think of it as this way. The, the word is functioning as, hey, wake up. You guys who are in charge of the night watch, wake up and pay attention. Almost, so that, that's the behold. And then come, come bless, would, would be like, come on, let's, let's do this. Let's do this together. So if you, if you think of behold in the sense of look or look here and come in the sense of come on, it makes more sense and is saying about the same thing. So the people are addressing those in the temple. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, all you temple servants in charge of the night watch. Verse 2, lift up your hands to the holy place and, once again, bless the Lord. Starting to detect a theme, I hope. This term that's translated holy place, it's a little bit imprecise in the Hebrew. I mean, it's really just the adjective for holy. That's it. Holy place is probably the most literal translation. The King James has sanctuary, and that's just as well. It could be a reference to the temple, to the holy sanctuary in the temple, or even to the holy of holies. But the main point is that the temple 
workers, the, the, the Levites and, and assistants and things like that, are being called to, to orient their attention and even their hands, you notice, toward the sanctuary, toward the place of God's presence. Now, the lifting up of hands is a very familiar practice in, uh, in, in, in our day. You see it in worship services. Uh, and I, what is weird to me, which I do not claim to have an explanation for, I've even seen it at um, uh, uh, rock concerts, like Christian or not. Just People start singing and the hands go up, right? When you study the biblical use and appropriation of the action of lifting hands, what you discover is the purpose is, is perhaps a bit more specific than what we tend to use it for today. Lifting up of hands at, uh, at kind of random self-directed times is kind of what I would call a modern tradition that's developed in recent decades. Doesn't mean it's wrong. I do it all the time. You guys have seen me do it all the time. Uh, uh, recent doesn't mean wrong. But the origin of the symbolism is really cool. In the ancient world, lifting hands, could be one hand, could be both hands, was a sign of covenantal loyalty. Okay? Almost like a military salute. Think of it in, in those terms. That would be the closest thing we could compare it to. Covenants in the ancient world were almost always between a, uh, uh, some kind of exalted king or sovereign and a lesser vassal state, lesser nation, uh, basically someone who needed protection. And so that was usually what would trigger a covenant, is that you'd have a, much, a person in a much mightier position covenanting, promising protection to the, the, the weaker, smaller vassal state or, or person or group of persons in exchange for their service, okay? So it's always uh, the covenants being mediated from a greater party to a lesser party, okay? And sometimes it would also happen at the conclusion of a battle, the losing army would be the, the le- saying, okay, now we have a covenant that you are a protected state, you belong to the king now, okay? And... Uh, so, so that's how covenants in the ancient world would often work, and one of the ways that they would uh, symbolize that covenant is the scarring or branding of the hand or wrist. Okay, Some of you already know where I'm going. So the, the reason was, was that the vassal state or the servant, the lower party, or the representative of the lower party, would have his hand or wrist scarred or branded. So that if ever the king, the mighty party, was not keeping his end of the covenant, the, the, the vassal, the servant, could come and lift up his hands and say, do you not remember? Do you not remember the, the, the agreement, we, the, the covenant we made? Do you not remember? It's here in my flesh. And to think that in the new covenant, our king takes scars on his hands, and forever bears in his own body the marks of covenant loyalty and faithfulness to us. So that we never have to ask, my Lord and King, do you remember? Rather, he spreads his arms wide and says, I will never forget, my son. How cool is that? <laughs> now for Israel, especially with regard to temple worship, it is, I'll just say it, it's unlikely that you ever would have seen people uh, individual people raising up their hands during worship, it tended to be something they did together. It usually came after a celebration of sacrifice or atonement, okay, uh, forgiveness, and the idea is the people would then lift up holy hands, is the terminology, uh, 
thanking the Lord for his forgiveness. And this is the same idea when at the end of the service, you're invited to lift up your hands in a, in a receiving position to receive the benediction and blessing of God. So the way that, that takes shape in our services today is that a servant of the word, or ordained and called servant of the word, part of his job is to speak God's word to you so that you hear God's voice in his word in worship. You hear him calling you in, which we call the call to worship. You hear him forgiving your sins in the assurance of pardon. You hear him in his word whenever it's faithfully preached. And you hear the blessing of grace and peace as he sends you out. Now that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with lifting hands at various times individually. I'm simply noting that in ancient Israel, it was often a corporate action. And this call on the Levites then, to get back to our text, these Levites in the night watch to lift up their hands, verse 3 is then the Levitical response. So we've had the call in verse 1 and the instruction in verse 2. And now verse 3 is the, is the Levites replying, okay? May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So you see the, the call and response. So, um, so after this, this call on the Levites of the night watch to lift their hands, verse 3 is the response. And the idea is these people, as they were departing, would have been singing this together and hearing the response uh, uh, the, or excuse me, hearing the call and the instruction, the Levites would sing the response. And then we would start it back again. The, the call and the instruction and the response. And the call and the instruction and the response. And so it would go as they were, as they were departing. So what is, what is the response? May the Lord, may Yahweh, bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Okay? So just to go over it again. The first part is awaken your heart. Come bless the Lord. Behold, bless the Lord. The, then there's this Call to, call to worship this instruction. Lift up your hands to the holy place and there's a response from, of blessing. The Lord bless you from Zion as you go. I'm, I'm adding that bit as you go. The, the word blessing there being really important. I don't know if you noticed, but, but bless shows up three times and I, again, just so we're all on the same page, there are only three verses, right? So, and bless shows up in every one of them. The word blessing shows up in every verse. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, may the Lord bless you from Zion. And so basically in biblical usage there, God blessing people is one kind of action. People blessing God is a different kind of action. When people are blessed by God, the easiest way to explain it, I would say, again, I'm, as, as I'm continuing to learn and grow, as all of you are, my, my best understanding of blessing that I've got is being filled up and given strength. That's, I think that's a good synonym for blessing. When the, and when people bless God, when people bless God, they're obviously not giving God strength. Rather, they're praising Him or adoring Him. And maybe even if you want to put it this way, to bless God is to take His blessing that He's given you and return it to Him in thanksgiving and praise. Okay? As theologian Derek Kidner notes, this blessing goes from man to God in verses 1 and 2, and now here from God to man, but the exchange is quite unequal. To bless God is to acknowledge gratefully what he is, but to bless man, God must make of him what he is not and give him what he has not. All right? So, I want to talk to you about at least three things this text puts before us here. That was kind of serving as an intro, introduction and a survey to this psalm. The first thing we see in this psalm is called worship. 
That is not uh, that is worship that is called. People that are called together to worship. Why would God want His people singing songs like this? Why would God want His people singing songs uh, like 134 with blessing, blessing, blessing echoing off the walls back and forth? Apparently, because our hearts need to be called to worship. Just a few weeks ago, I received a jury duty summons in the mail. They called me up. And they ended up not needing me, which I have to admit was a little disappointing. I was really looking forward to showing up in my clerical collar. And when they asked me if there's anything that would prohibit me from serving on a jury, I was going to say no, except that I believe that all of our judges in this courtroom should obey Psalm 2 and kiss the son lest they perish in his wrath. Just to see the response. But they ended up not needing me. (laughs) But I did get called. I I was summoned. And, and it was a, it's a sobering summons. I don't know if you've ever gotten it and read it, but like it, it's, very, it's very sobering. They're not playing with you. you. You have to show up at this time, this place, do this duty. You do not have a choice. And if you do not show up, you will be in trouble. You better have a good reason. And they list the reasons. Now, why do they do all that? Well, I mean, for purposes of order, yeah. But, but it's also because most people are not going to come unless they're called. This is why there are calls like this in other places in Scripture calling us in to worship God. That's why part of my service to you as a pastor is to, is to gather up and curate those, those calls in Scripture and put them into the start of our services so that you can once again hear God's voice calling you in as we come to worship together because it is God Himself who calls us. And then just like Psalm 134, He puts that call and that blessing into the mouths and melodies of your neighbors so that you can hear it again and again and again. Well, but that's not God talking. That's other humans talking. Biblically speaking, please don't be so naive. Just please don't, please don't be so kind of modern in the way that you're thinking about this. So called worship is the first thing I want to show you in this psalm. The second one is embodied worship. That is worship That is being done by people who have physical bodies. Did you happen to notice there's physical stuff happening in this psalm? Verse 1. Come, uh, bless the Lord. Behold, bless the Lord. So so come in. Come to this location and bless the Lord. Who, uh, sorry. All you servants of the Lord who stand. Okay. So these people are apparently standing. I think if I've, I've got my facts right, only the high priest was allowed to sit during these times. All the rest of the people who were on duty were standing. Lift up your hands, verse 2. Okay, so not only are they standing, but they're lifting up their hands. They're being told to do something with their bodies. And verse 3, the blessing that comes back to the people is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord who is Lord over the, you might say, the spiritual realm and the material, physical, earthly realm. So, So not just heaven, but heaven and earth. Not just spiritual things, but also physical things. Why does that matter? Because we're talking about matter, right? Matter matters. God loves matter. God made matter. He made all the stuff. He made the heavens. He made the earth. He spoke it all into existence. He made flowers and berries and metals and wood and dogs and some cats. That's a joke. (laughs) He made it all. Clouds and, and bodies Flesh, sunrises and sunsets, mornings and night times. That's why they have night watchmen in the temple. 
So what are they doing in the temple? Where they're, where they're, they're beholding. They're standing. They're lifting up hands. They're worshiping with their bodies together. And so what this reminds us about ourselves and about embodied worship is that worship is not just something that happens in your heart alone. It is that. It's, just, it's not less than that, excuse me. It's just more than that. I mean, because a lot of things happen in your heart. Reverence happens in your heart. Awe happens in your heart. Joy and lament, happiness and sadness happen in your heart. But corporate worship is heart and flesh. It's soul and body. In fact, in Greek, the New Testament verb for worship and the verb for falling on your face are the same verb. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be on your face in order to worship, although it might help. Our psalm tells these priests to stand before the Lord, so we know they don't always have to be on their face. But my point is that worship has always involved our bodies. We're embodied people, and that's part of worship. Paul tells us as much in Romans 12. Some of you were probably already thinking of that verse. Let's go there now. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice that Paul is talking about the corporate body, people of God, together. How do I know that? Look at the text. Okay, let's go to verse 1. I think it's the next one. Yeah, yeah, just verse 1, okay? Watch this. He says, I appeal to you brothers, plural, In Louisiana, we would say all y'all, okay? I appeal to you brothers, plural, to present your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. Have you ever noticed that before? Not, Not each of you individually are your own living sacrifices, but all of you together are the sacrifice, which is your, plural, all of y'all's spiritual worship. So whenever we gather together, By worshiping God, body and soul, we are offering up a living sacrifice to Him. He then goes on, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Did you know that the world has a mold that it's trying to force you into? It's a reality of, reality of life for the Christian. This world and its ways of thinking and its ways of doing and its ways of believing, trying to force you into them. This world has ways of reasoning and wants, you to, wants to force you into them. This world has ways of speaking and special ways of defining words and wants you to begin thinking in your mind that these ways are the best ways to talk and to think and to live your life. And so Paul says, do not conform. Do not comply. Do not be shaped and twisted into what the world would have you to be. Let me briefly just address young people in our midst. This is a temptation that as far as I can tell, dearly beloved youth, I I don't mean to target you, but as best I can tell, this is a temptation that tends to confront you especially. Now, people older than you are not invulnerable to it. But it is why you will sometimes, it is one of the reasons why you will sometimes struggle heartily, mightily with your faith. And some of you more than sometimes. Because the world has a mold and it's saying, get in. God calls you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which sometimes hurts 
It usually feels awkward. It usually feels uncomfortable. And it usually feels, I don't know, less than certain. So what can we, what can we take from that? What, what do we do with that? And, and even how do, how do we get at it? How, do, we, do we just hear this command? Okay, don't be conformed, but be transformed. So I just got to work really hard at being transformed, I guess. No, no, you missed verse 1. When we gather for worship together to make this corporate offering and sacrifice together, that is warfare on the molds of the world that want to shape us. And it, was, it is what God calls true spiritual worship. You want to be spiritual? Yeah, go to church. <laughs> but what, what is being spiritual though? Seriously. Think about that in, 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 in light of Romans 12. What is spiritual worship? The answer is embodied worship. It's, it's a text that's calling us to think of worship as something we're doing with our bodies. Standing together with reverence for the voice of God calling us in. Singing together, offering up our melodies and our harmonies together. Lifting up hands together. This is why you've often heard me say that our gathered worship is not cubicle worship. It is not each of us individually having our own private devotional time in public. We are not each in our own cubicles, in our own little box. We are the gathered people of God, and the offering that we give to God is a corporate offering. I once heard it said that <laughs> too many Reformed Christians think that the only reason God gave us bodies is so that we would have something to carry our brains to church with. <laughs> What's the purpose of your body? Well, it's a transportation device for my brain. <laughs> no. God cares deeply about what you do with your body. And so, is it for the worship of God? Is it for the worship of you? Is it for the worship of some idol? An idol of sex or sexuality? Those are the most, I think, obvious ones in our culture today. Is it for the worship of the self at, at the gym or on Instagram? Is it for the worship of others? When you use your body to get attention from other people. What if our bodies are made for worship? What if the, the, the whole reason why God gave you knees is to kneel in prayer and everything else is incidental or accidental? And what if there's a reason we kneel in prayer? What if that like actually helps us to pray? What if there's a reason we stand in reverence? What if there's a reason we bow our heads in humility? What if there's a reason we sit in contemplation? God cares about what we do with our bodies. And so, I told you at least three things that we were going to walk through. Okay? Uh, one of them was that we're, we're called into worship together. Another one was embodied worship. That was the second thing. The third thing is heavenly worship. You see, the, song, uh, the songs of a sense give a sense of we're going home. Okay? We're going back to Zion. And then arrival in Jerusalem is matched with this warm welcome home. Right? Now some of you may have been wondering, I've been going through this, through this psalm, and you're thinking, okay, alright, so sounds like this psalm was written for Levites in the temple in Jerusalem. And for people to sing to the Levites, and then for the Levites to sing back to them, cool, what does that have to do with me? I'm not a Levite, and Brian, you can't fool me with that robe. You are not one either. To which I would say, fair enough. 
But to help us get at this idea and what it means for us, I think you have to read and sing this psalm through the lens of Hebrews 12. Can we go there, please? Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is probably my favorite verse in the whole book of Hebrews. Easy. But do you realize what's being said here? It's astonishing. In speaking to a gathered congregation, which is the first sort of port of call for all these letters in the New Testament that would have been read to a congregation, in speaking to a gathered congregation, the writer of the Hebrews says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Really? I thought we were just going to church at 4900 Jackson Street in Alexandria. (laughs) You are. You're also going to heaven. That's what he says. He doesn't say, if you worship hard enough and sing hard enough, if your preacher preaches hard enough, then a day might come where you feel like you're entering heaven. He says, you've come to Mount Zion. Welcome home. That should astonish us that every Sunday when we gather together, we're not simply showing up for church because that's what good Christians do. We're joining the angels for a heavenly feast. We're communing with God our Father, with Jesus our Savior, with the Holy Spirit our comforter and advocate. We are meeting with the mediator of our new covenant so that he might renew it and refresh our hearts for another week so that we can descend back into the world until next Sunday when we will join the Song of Ascents once more up to the heavenly Jerusalem. That is why, amen, (laughs) that is why I shared with you last week that old Eucharistic prayer, often prayed responsively in high liturgical traditions, right? The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord, right? The lift up your hearts is, let's go to heaven. We lift them up to the Lord. We're going, we're right behind you. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you remember that, Cain and Abel? Right? Cain is jealous of his brother, hates him, so he kills him. And the Lord says to Cain, your brother's blood is talking to me. Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Do you know what Abel's blood was saying? Kill him. Get him back. Make him pay. Now that's not an evil request. That's simple justice. Lord, God, do justice and spill his blood too. What we are told here is that the spilled blood of Jesus also has something to say. It cries out when we gather together to worship him. We come, we stand, we lift up our hands. The spilled blood of Jesus cries out and says, forgive them. Forgive them of everything. Forgive them of everything, down to the smallest sin that hides in the corner like a little dust mite. Forgive them by my blood forever. Who are we to sing such songs? Indeed, who are the priests in this heavenly Jerusalem? You are. You are. First Peter 2. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The priesthood of all believers, as Martin Luther called it, not the priesthood of every believer. It's not an individualistic doctrine. It's the priesthood of all believers together so that now on this side of the cross, we can sing Psalm 134 to each other because we're the priests. Come, behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night or by morning or by noontime in the house of the Lord. We call each other to lift up holy hands. Lift up your hands to the holy place, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and bless the Lord. And then we preach to each other with the response in verse 3. The Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. And this call and response moves in and out like the ocean waves. Calling on us and then giving us the blessing of our God. Calling on us and then giving us the blessing of our God. And so... Under the new covenant, this song becomes a song of invitation, rejoicing, and blessing for us to sing together forever. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so our Father, we thank you that we have been called. We thank you that you've called us, not just just our spirits, but you've actually called our, our bodies in here and in various other places all over the world as you draw all nations and all men unto yourself to worship the living God. And so grant that we would sing with refreshed hearts, with joy, with love for you, that we would hear the call and come, and that we would receive the blessing with joy. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.